good. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of Dr. Jill Live. Um, I'm here with a special friend and guest, Rian Doris, who I'll introduce in just a moment. As you know, you can find all episodes if you've missed any on YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I have a podcasting expert and brilliant researcher and friend and someone I just have so much admiration and respect for, Rian Doris. Let me introduce him and we will jump right into our discussion. Today, we're going to be talking about his area of expertise, which is flow states. Now, you've probably heard me talk about flow here because I love the concept. I love the idea. And in my own work, I found it to be absolutely essential, not only for a fantastic life of optimal performance, but also for health and healing. And we're going to dive in today with the expert uh, to find out more how that can help your health and just even your mindset and your ability to accomplish all of the things that you want to do in life. So Reendorse is co-founder and CEO of Flow Research Collective, the world's leading peak performance research and training institute. This is focused on decoding the neuroscience of flow states and revolutionizing the way we approach work. And I'm going to add health and healing to that today. <laughs> Rian's helped thousands of entrepreneurs and executives achieve, achieve uh, peak performance from Accenture to Audi to the co-founders of Ethereum. His work has been featured in Fast Company, Forbes, and Big Think. He's also the co-host and host of Flow Research Collective Radio, and this is an iTunes top science podcast. He holds a degree in neurophysiology from Trinity College in Dublin and a master's of science in neuroscience at King's College in London. He's currently completing an MBA at Quantic University. He must love to learn, Rian, like me. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the chasing of, yeah. Um, and he's currently um, co-founder with Flow Research Collective with Stephen Kotler. He's worked with best-selling um, authors and, and many of the people. We actually met kind of through a, a marketing person that we both used. And mm -hmm. when I was working on my book, she was gracious enough to connect me to you. And it was just a fast friendship and um, love and respect to you and what you're doing. So welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, yeah, as you know, I'm a huge fan of yours as well. It's been really great to build this relationship with you over the last couple of years. Thank you. Thank you. So I always love to start with story because story drives what we do, why we do it, the purpose and meaning behind our lives. And I'd love to know just very briefly where you grew up. Obviously, you have a great education and you're continuing to learn and grow. And then how did you get into flow research and what intrigued you to find out more about this and actually be kind of, I think, the leading edge of, of really delving into what does this mean for our health of mind, body and spirit? Mm. Yeah, it's a fun question. I, I grew up in Ireland, mm -hmm. which is what's going to explain the slightly contorted accent for people. And I grew up on the west coast of Ireland in a pretty remote area, a county called Mayo. I kind of describe it to Americans as the Alaska of Ireland. It's like oh, wow. right on the tip of the Atlantic, one of the closest spots to New York um, from, from Europe. And um, when I was age one through 12, I would go to India oh. every year with my parents. They had a meditation practice that they did in a part of Southern India called Chennai. And I actually learned funnily enough to walk as a one-year-old child in an Indian ashram, which was a bizarre contrast between wow. kind of the, the back of beyonds in the country in Ireland and then India, a very, very, very stark contrast and juxtaposition and um, had, a had a lovely childhood. And when I was 13, I was on holidays with my parents in Croatia, which is, which is a country in kind of the middle of Europe that back then wasn't in the EU. And I was uh, with my little brother and we were sort of wandering down this beach and we found this semi-abandoned water park. 
And we had a great time walking up the stairs that were sort of semi-rotten and there was uh. missing planks on the stairs a hundred foot mm-hmm. up. Um, one of the main slides we were going down was one of these vertical sort of hundred foot drop water slides. And we went up and down it a few times. And on the, the fourth or fifth time, I tried to do a somersault off the bottom of the slide and I semi-rotated and just went head first into the concrete bottom of the pool, um, which was only about three foot deep. Again, this is kind of a semi-abandoned yeah. water park in Croatia before it was in the EU. So regulations and all that were a little, a little loose. And that resulted in about seven years of neurological debilitation that was pretty significant. I, uh, for the first year after that, I was you know, almost fully in bed couldn't remember the name of you know many of my close friends and acquaintances I couldn't remember the name of my favorite band Mm -hmm. and um yeah really struggled from from then the whole way through to age 19 for about six or seven years after that accident and in the middle of that I, I was dealing with um mental health challenges as well anxiety and depression and I came across Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's research on flow state um and reading about this state of optimal performance and deep absorption where, you know, all of these performance outcomes go through the roof was incredibly compelling because I was in, you know, this dysfunctional state, the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I dove into positive psychology and neurobiology and neuroscience and became obsessed with this world, um, largely in an attempt to fix my own brain and get back, um, get my own cognitive functioning fully back online. And then I came across Stephen Kotler, who had been building on a lot of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's work. And uh, Stephen and I started working together and we worked together for a number of years. And then we ended up co-founding Flow Research Collective together uh, about almost four years ago now. There's a lot more in there with, yeah. within that story as well, of course. But yeah, those are the broad strokes. Wow. So I knew some about your journey, but I didn't know the detailed story about your injury and concussion. And it makes so much sense because uh, as healers, we kind of have to like, often we, um, and whether you're in research or whatever, you're bringing this incredible information to the world. And even if it's performance, I consider that this Mm. realm of healing because you're helping someone to be the best version of themselves, right? And whether it's mind, body, or spirit. And Mm. I also love, you had this really unique childhood where you got to see the power of meditation from an incredibly young age. So you kind of knew from your parents, this power of the mind, right? Mm. Um, do you think that's what maybe kind of clicked for you is like, because a lot of people I think don't realize, I never want to say like when people visit me and they have had chronic complex condition, it's never in their head. Like it's never just a cause of their thinking, but as you and I know, there's such a powerful ability of overcoming the odds by how we think. Right. Mm. And, um, so tell us just a little bit about like, what was the first, your first intro was, um, I always say his name right, wrong, but Chick Dehai, right? <laughs> Mihai Chick Mihai. Yeah, we, some of the PhDs that we have on our team say the biggest thing they learned doing a PhD was pronouncing Mihai Chick Mihai's name. <laughs> I've said it thousands of times. Like I, it's, I, it's I, a I tough one. Him, exactly. I still like stumble, so I'll just point to you and you'll have to say it for yeah, me whenever you do that. But you came first across his research, and what was? Do you remember back then? Like, what were your first thoughts? Or like, had you had any concept that there was an idea of flow states or high performance through um, this altered state? Um, and how did that? Obviously, it transitioned your whole entire life. But do you remember th- like how you thought about it or what you felt when you first came across that? Yeah, I do. I actually came across uh, some other work before I came across flow. So I was at 15, I was actually living um, on my own, funnily Mm -hmm. enough, in an apartment in Dublin. I went to boarding school in Dublin and then for one year, 
my parents were kind and trusting enough to let me live on my own. Um, but it was a tough year and um, I was living in this tiny little apartment in uh, South Dublin in kind of in the rain during the winter part of the, the school year. And I found this book on the shelf there that I think was the previous owner's book. It wasn't my parents. It wasn't mine. And it was called Blink by Matthew Syed. Yes. And it's one of those core books that argues that talent is a myth. Yes. And that all capability is in some way, shape or form learned mm -hmm. through practice and through access to flow state. And that book just shattered my paradigm and really installed a growth mindset for me and kind of instilled this sense of agency in the sense that we can actually determine our future and that, you know, the results we achieve and the places we end up in life are ultimately a function of, you know, choice and volition rather mm. than just circumstance and uh, predeterminism. So that, that was the book I actually first came across that opened me up to this whole world. And then I had this weird experience from 15 to 18 of ordering all these books on Amazon and buying all these books that I then realized my parents already owned. Wow. When I was younger, I used to kind of mock the fact that they meditated. I thought they were hippies. Yeah. I thought it was silly and goofy. And then all of a sudden I went full circle into, you know, yeah. reading <laughs> learning and in, in the world that they were already in yeah exactly um and, and realized came, oh my parents were actually kind of like you probably didn't like when you first found blink it wasn't like oh this is my parents world it was like it kind of yes. came later right exactly yeah. yeah so i ended up going full circle which was hilarious and then finding their bookshelves yeah the most interesting bookshelves around um which was funny after having been a rebellious kind of kid yeah. earlier and then i came across Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's book, Flow. I listened to the audio book, which he narrates himself. It's a very kind of amusing audio book. And then I came across Stephen's work on a podcast with Dave Asprey, who I know you know, Jill. Yeah. And uh, then I added him as a friend on Facebook, which I, I had a habit of doing this. If I met someone yeah. or heard someone cool, I would just search them on Facebook and try and find their personal account and then just click add friend. And I did that when I was about 17 Wow. And a couple of years later, I'd kind of forgotten who Stephen was at the time, vaguely remembered. Yeah. Uh, and he posted a Facebook status asking for interns. Oh. And I was only 19 at the time. And I shot wow. him a Facebook message that I want to be your intern. And that's that's where it all began. So. Wow. I love that. And I love your just like a, your drive. You know, this is one thing I think that I see with a lot of people who are very successful. There's this internal drive to find answers and to figure yeah. out whether it's your problem, someone else's problem or whatever you come across in there. You clearly had that because at 15, when you read the book Blink, this was after your accident, right? Like you were actually in the midst mm -hmm. of kind of rehab. Were you at that time struggling cognitively or were you feeling like you were getting a heads up? How, how were you feeling at that time when you started to really find this information? It was still challenging. Yeah, I still had pretty severe symptoms. I, I, at that time, I had fairly challenging mental health symptoms. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it had been years and years of being physically debilitated, yeah. and that had started to kind of take its toll on my spirit. And I was feeling low and struggling with depression and anxiety at the time um, when I found that book Blink. But yeah, I, I definitely agree that there is this innate desire within certain folks to find answers. Tim Urban, who's the author wow. of a blog called Wait But Why, which is one of my favorite blogs, he calls it clearing the fog. Oh, uh, and yeah. it's that desire to just clear the fog and get clarity on these big answers to foundational questions about life and yeah. the human condition. And I definitely had that that age. 
Yeah, you could, and you continue again to bring insight to the world. This reminds me of Malcolm uh, Gladwell's book, Outliers. I think that's the one yeah. that talks about the 10,000 rule. I remember for me, that was, I read Blink as well, but I remember thinking, oh, you know what, this is why I'm good at what I do because I put so much time and energy into it. And I love what you said, because if you're out there listening, sometimes you'd be like, well, I'm not the prodigy in the violin or I'm not the sports prodigy, but there is a big piece of this that's practice, 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 and just spending the time. And even me as a medical detective, like it's really, I'm not that smart. I just have spent a lot of hours and same with mm -hmm. you as well. Like, not that you're, you are brilliant, but like the, the amount of time we've spent studying and understanding these topics, I think is what gives us that edge. And it's encouraging because I think, like I said today, what I want to talk about is really go into flow. What is it? You tell us all the um, expert answers on this, but also go to like, how can that actually help your physical health? Because I think it's overlapping. So let's start there, like define flow for those of us out, people out there that are like, what is flow? What are you talking about? Let's get the basics on what is flow. And then let's talk about like, what are the steps and the types of mindsets that get us to that state? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's, one of his definitions, which is a little bit broad and vague, is that flow is an optimal state of consciousness in which you feel your best and perform your best, both mentally and mm -hmm. physically. Very simple definition, a, a definition that goes a little bit deeper, that's more descriptive, uh, describes what it feels like to be in a flow state. And when you're in a flow state, you have a very, very large sense of absorption in the task at hand. So you become one with whatever it is that you're doing action and awareness merge so an example would be you know if you're surfing and you sort of feel blended into the wave and to the surfboard if you're writing and you feel just kind of at one with your computer First. screen immersed, exactly <laughs> yeah. immersion and absorption are big characteristics of flow time dilation is another big characteristic um of flow where time speeds up or slows down depending on the type of flow and the type of activity that you're getting into flow within and um, sense of self quietens down. And this may be one of the things we can touch on around health, but when you're in flow, that inner monologue, your inner voice tends to just downregulate and go offline, which is one of the reasons that performance and creativity in particular increases so much in flow because the inner critic that is doing the self editing constantly. Yes is switched off for the most part when in a flow state. So yeah, and as, as a writer, that's one of the things I've noticed is when I get in that good state, and I even encourage you know, people are starting to write or whatever, often what I would do is either I would dictate as some of the writing, or I would um, get in there and I say green light, you've, I'm sure heard that term, but you really need to turn off that editor in some way, shape or form, because the the things that are really brilliant usually come from esoteric and you might throw out 10 really crazy ideas and one of them is good the rest are garbage but you have to get to that state of like not self-editing and and it's in my mind it's also on two very different forms and probably more than this as we talk about health but one is like performance like physical activity surfing or skiing or you know any sort of um dangerous or extreme activity or really anything in between but then it can also be this whole creative side where you're maybe just sitting in front of a computer writing or you're creating music or you're uh, painting. Is there any other areas that you think of as far, like places where we typically encounter flow? Yeah, those are some great examples. The big buckets that I like to think through are cognitive, first mm -hmm. of all. So that might be getting into flow while debating or while yes. doing Sudoku as a puzzle or, or doing math or solving problems within a business or entrepreneurship, then social 
and relational and group contexts mm -hmm. are very, very conducive to flow as well. So that those are another big category of flow. And that may be getting lost in a conversation and maybe a form of group flow at scale, which we refer to as communitas, like being in flow in a huge sports stadium when your favorite team is winning and the entire 80,000 people within that stadium are kind of in this collective communitas group flow state. That can happen in, in a number of different ways. You also get that within good teams tend to get into flow together. And then you've got physical forms of flow, which are fairly intuitive and obvious to people again surfing is an example runners high would be an example of, of that and then you've got a creative flow like you mentioned playing musical instruments painting singing writing poetry those are all some some examples of flow cognitive you know social relational or group and then physical and creative uh, and if you've ever been to like jazz improv or any of those, that's like a classic place where you just see this like, wow, I don't know what's happening, but those guys are in, and they're probably group and musical, right? It's like this kind of combo. Um, yeah, so there's there's a good synonym for flow within the jazz world is being uh, in the pocket. They call oh, it cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. the same thing, being in flow. And other synonyms are, you know, again, runner's high, uh -huh. being in the zone, getting in state is another way people will will talk about it. So yeah, there's a lot of synonyms for flow that are all referring to the same thing. It's so fun because I have like a million directions I want to go. One thing I want to talk about before we go into like how this could relate to health is um, the neurotransmitters, right? I love the biology and the physiology of this. And this is a very like researched, like we know mm. the optimal levels of a lot of neurotransmitters. Do you want to talk briefly about those different ones and kind of how they all come together? And um, because I think if we say, how does this actually happen in the human body? This neurotransmitter concept is a piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah, the, the, the neurotransmitters that we believe show up and flow in, the evidence is still a little bit inconclusive, is mm -hmm. serotonin, norepinephrine, anandamide, endorphins, and dopamine. Dopamine particularly plays a role at the beginning of flow in honing attention yeah. and kind of tuning the signal-to-noise ratio. There's, there's 22 different triggers or preconditions for flow that have been identified in the literature by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi since the 1960s and each of those triggers that drive you into a flow state and i can talk about some examples of yes. those tend to um in some way shape or form impact dopamine which mm -hmm. impacts attention and focus mm -hmm. and then results in in flow beginning to and there's occur. addictive potential there too which is in this way i think is a very healthy but it's something when you go into flow i've been there you've been there you want to go back right you want to like what's the next whether it's your runner's high or because some people and and so i think that there's this piece that's actually self um fulfilling with flow correct 100 percent. yeah there's a few things to mention there one is that flow is a value neutral state um, mm -hmm. and one good way to think about it is just as an accelerant and it will accelerate good behavior but it will also accelerate destructive behavior and they've done research on flow within addicted populations people who are addicted to video games addicted to gambling sex addiction and the groups that experience more flow within those activities have much more severe addiction and more severe downstream negative consequences from those addictions mm -hmm. so flow is good and bad you can also i mean get into flow while you know vandalizing cars or committing crimes as well um, in fact, there, there was uh, an interesting paper that was claiming that the highest flow activity 
based on certain data was actually doing graffiti um, on streets. Yeah, there's a number of different reasons for that. One is that risk is a trigger for flow. Risk is one of those 22 triggers. Mm -hmm. And risk is obviously very high when you're, you're, you know, doing graffiti on a building you're not supposed to be doing Mm -hmm. it on. Um, So yeah, flow is definitely value neutral. It can accelerate addiction, but it can also accelerate all the good things that you want in your life and that you want to get better at, whether that's playing with your children and being present or whether it's working or whether it's, you know, engaging in a sport or an activity that you're trying to attain mastery within. So I'm really glad you brought that point up because that's never been something on my radar. I totally get it and I agree with what you're saying, but I've never thought about it as being value neutral and being careful because just like any addiction, it could be some place where you go or you exclude your family or you neglect something because you're so wrapped up in flow. And even that as a good activity, if you're completely ignoring family, friends or, or um, you know obligations, it could be a negative thing as well. Um, interesting. Now, when you mentioned the neurotransmitters and things, especially endorphins, we know those will suppress pain. And we actually use something in the medical community called lotus naltrexone to actually mm-hmm. naturally inhibit our own endorphins so that our body gets tricked into producing more. And it's a great thing because we use it for autoimmunity. We use it for inflammation and cytokines. So we know that this endorphin production in our body actually helps with our physical health. And this might be one gateway, but also with pain. Um, and have you talked about much the research or read much about like, what about it flow and pain or what about flow? And um, do we know any connection right now in the research with actual health states of health besides medical? Yeah. So we had a client um, three or four years ago. He was a really, really successful and, and pretty well-known Australian entrepreneur. And when he was in his late twenties, he developed really severe dislodged discs in his lower back that were pushing on a nerve in his lower back and causing absolutely excruciating, excruciating pain to the point that it was unbearable. And he tried all of the various medical interventions and painkillers. And the only thing that worked for him was the absorption and thus the pain relief that came with the absorption from being in a flow state. And in order to survive essentially and mitigate the pain that he was experiencing, he would get into these very, very deep flow states while working. And he did that for a decade as a, as his primary tool of pain management and ended up building a hundred million dollar business because he was basically in flow, avoiding the physical pain within his back all day, every day for, for 10 years. And he managed to eventually get it sorted as technology advanced and he was able to get more sophisticated surgery, but the absorption that occurs in Mm -hmm. flow can significantly alleviate pain what's interesting as well is that there are different schools of thought around pain alleviation and whether mindfulness or mindlessness is better for pain alleviation there's a whole school of thought around using mindfulness to become in touch with the sensation of the pain and to distance oneself experience from it and to view it as just a part of the sensory stream what is happening in flow is actually the opposite. It, it's mindlessness. Yes. There's less awareness fundamentally of the pain. So I, I find that spectrum from mindfulness to mindlessness interesting with respect to pain because you see that as well within extreme athletes. Some people use mental yes. tools to increase mindlessness so they feel the pain less. Some use mindfulness to feel the pain differently in a more distanced way, but to feel it more so yeah, flow, flow definitely has significant sort of um, pain management mm-hmm. applications. 
That's amazing. And I'm just thinking as you're talking, I don't know if this is the right um, language. And I would say you're the expert with your parents and your experience. So please correct me, but I've heard of like mindfulness or meditation versus contemplation. And I think of it maybe as similar like ideas of, of, of how we view things, but it's interesting because I think some of us who are creative or curious or like really active, cognitive, analytical, mm. for me, it's actually hard to be blank and kind of observe. But if I get into more of a lucid dreaming state, which is kind of the opposite of the right. And, and to me, I can still get some of the same benefits of the person who's meditating in this much more like super active state. Any comments or corrections on even how I'm saying that? Because I feel like those are, like you said, these two sides of things. And I guess I say that because I, for years, new meditation was important and, and, and helpful. I couldn't do it right. So I would always mm. feel like I can't do this. But what happened was when I got to this other side, which is almost like a lucid dreaming where I'm like vis visioning, things that would happen and like manifesting, that's where I do my best, but it's almost the opposite of meditation. Mm. Well, there's a few interesting things on that. I mean, the first thing is, so I did my master's dissertation on the relationship between flow and mindfulness. And one of the big yeah. pieces of literature I came across was on the adverse effects of mindfulness and meditation. Mm -hmm. And it's a counterintuitive thing because it mm -hmm. seems like such a non-invasive intervention yeah. you're just sitting with yourself how right. can anything go wrong <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but there's actually quite compelling literature especially within young males yeah. that mindfulness can actually result in adverse effects increased anxiety increased rumination yeah. increased self-doubt and things like that and the other thing that we often recommend to clients and that we say a lot is that Mindfulness and meditation is simple, but not easy. It's mm -hmm. actually a very sophisticated practice and it's challenging to become good enough at it and disciplined enough with it that it bears significant fruit. Mm -hmm. And often an activity that increases mindfulness, but that is not mindfulness because you can have increased dispositional mindfulness, meaning overall mindfulness in your day-to-day -day life through means other than state mindfulness, meaning mm -hmm. getting into a mindful state while meditating. So other things that increase dispositional mindfulness can be better. And examples of those are breath work or what yeah. you're emphasizing, sort of a lucid dreaming type of meditation or um, yeah, journaling. Yeah, I can create movies in my head about what, or it's something I want to happen. I can actually create a very realistic, complete like a scenario, it's like a dream, but I'm awake, right? And I'm actually controlling mm. the outcome. And I find for me, that takes me to such a really amazing state that it feels like what I assume would be similar to the observing of thoughts and the kind of detachment. Um, and again, I'm curious because I felt, I felt like that thing you mentioned, I think what I've seen in patients and a little bit myself is if we have trauma and we are go, 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 and thinking all the time, and we're using our analytical mind or our physical body to move because when we're still, those pieces start to percolate or bubble up. I think those type of people, and I'm pointing to myself, have more trouble with the stillness, right? Because they either have to deal with that anxiety or that fear or that sadness that comes up that they've just been running from. So there's a happy medium. I think you need both, but any comments on that? Like, do you think there might be association with unresolved trauma and lack of ability to be still with yourself? Definitely. Yeah. We had uh, Laird Hamilton mm -hmm. on our podcast. He's the big wave surfer. He's oh, yeah. some of the biggest waves on earth and he's an incredible guy. And he was talking about how when he wakes up in the morning, the first goal that he has is to exhaust the system. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> he does that by, you know, swimming dozens of lengths of the pool, doing a 90 minute workout, going for a surf, doing breath work, doing an ice bath. And he's literally 
soothing his system and increasing the degree to which his system is able to relax and slow down. And for someone like that, who is very yeah. type A, yep. hyperactive, I don't know about large specifically, but a lot of people in this kind of bucket have challenges mm-hmm. with ADHD. And when that is your constitution, an intervention like mindfulness may not hit hard enough to really yeah. settle your system and get the snow globe to start to yeah. settle down. And so things like breath work, you know, ice therapy, heat therapy, exercise, more active forms of meditation, like the one you were mentioning, Jill, can be much more effective mm-hmm. for people like that who really have a high degree of um, cognitive activity that they have to rein in. And, well, I yeah. love even just that we're talking about the ranges because I think that was my problem years ago was I heard mindfulness as one form and because I didn't fit, I felt like I was failing or doing it wrong or, you know, and so I always love to talk about this because there's got to be other people like me that have tried that and like, oh, that doesn't quite work for me, but this other thing that's close does. And I want to make it more acceptable to people and patients that you can choose what works for you and it doesn't have to be one size fits all. Um, but it is good to stretch, right? Like uh, even for me, it's good to try things that are not, are maybe not comfortable. So let's you mentioned flow triggers. We didn't talk yet about that. There's 20, 30 from, you know, the literature, there's probably more. Let's talk about the few, a few of the big ones. And when you talk about flow triggers, let's first define, what does that mean? Obviously. Yeah, sure. So a, a flow trigger is some sort of precondition mm-hmm. okay. that when present increases your likelihood of dropping into a flow state. Okay. And flow triggers trigger flow in an immediate sense. What Mm -hmm. what is also important to think about and what we also want to maximize is what is called flow proneness. And this is your overall susceptibility or predisposition to being able to access flow. So you want that, that increased likelihood of being able to access flow on an overall global level. And then you want the more acute presence of flow triggers to kind of tip you right over the edge into flow. And and we can dial both of those up in different ways. And one of the big flow triggers that's talked about a lot is the challenge skills balance. Um, Some people refer to this as the zone of proximal development. There's a number of different similar models for this. Uh, And that flow trigger states that we access flow at the point where our skill level slightly outstrips the Mm -hmm challenge sorry where the the challenge level of the task or activity slightly outstrips our current skill level Mm -hmm. and it puts us in a state of the perfect arousal or stimulation not so much that we're propelled into a state of anxiety and not so little that we're underwhelmed by the activity we're doing and we're just sort of bored and it feels mundane we want the thing that we're doing whether it's giving a speech to a certain audience size or whether it's writing up a paper or whether it's solving a big complex problem we want it to be just a little bit harder than our skill level is suited for but not too much and not too little and if that's the case then we can access flow much more easily in that sweet spot so trying something new or different or challenging ourselves whether it's physically or mentally um, are all good things because we push that envelope just a little and just enough to like you said keep the attention because boredom is a terrible way to be in flow, right? You can't really get there. But then if it's super, super difficult, you get overwhelmed and you're like, I can't do this. So I, I yeah, love that. Exactly. You want to you want to push the data that Stephen has cited says that you want the challenge level to be about 4% mm-hmm. beyond your existing skill level. 
So that that's can be a helpful way to think about it. If you're, you know, if the thing you're doing is just two times harder than the skill level that you have makes you capable for, you're going to be pushed up into anxiety and out of flow. But if it's half as challenging as you're capable for, you're going to drop down and into boredom. And there's different ways that you can modulate how challenging something is. You can compress the amount of time that you will give yourself for that thing and make it more difficult that way. Or you can expand out the amount of time that you have for a certain thing and you can access flow um, more easily through making a task easier like that if it's harder than your skill level is suited for in the first place so there's a there's a few ways you can kind of tune the challenge skills balance to arrive at flow great tips and what where do purpose meaning some of those really core things have i know they have a lot to do with flow tell us how they fit in yeah that's a great that's a great question so one of the models we use a lot uh, refers to the five drivers of intrinsic motivation there's two forms of motivation that people are probably familiar with extrinsic motivation where you're engaging in an activity or a task to get some form of external outcome that is separate from the engagement within the task itself and then there's intrinsic motivation where you're doing the thing just for the sake of doing the thing and the fuel source of intrinsic motivation is generally more powerful. It's longer lasting. It's more conducive to flow. It's more enriching over the long term. It builds and drives fulfillment. Whereas extrinsic motivation tends to be diminished when we get the extrinsic thing. Mm-hmm. If we're motivated by money, once we get the money, the motivation goes away. If we're motivated by status. Once we get the status, the motivation goes away. Whereas if you're motivated by engagement with the thing itself, so long as you're still engaged with the thing itself, you're, you're still motivated. And the, the five drivers of that sort of motivation, of intrinsic motivation, are purpose, passion, curiosity, autonomy, and um, mastery. Yes. And those are a really helpful lens to think through when you're trying to maximize intrinsic motivation. And so purpose, simply defined as about others. Yeah. Passion, simply defined as about you. You may be wildly passionate about playing the piano, but if it's not linked to some sort of purpose that impacts others, you will have less overall intrinsic motivation. But if, for example, you're wildly passionate about playing the piano and you play the piano for huge audiences in a way that is incredibly moving and meaningful for them, you then add that purpose component in. And as a result of having both of those boxes checked, intrinsic motivation tends to go up. And the more intrinsic motivation tends to go up, the more that flow tends to occur. The more that flow tends to occur, the more intrinsic motivation tends to occur. So it becomes this compounding feedback loop that builds on itself because flow is autotelic. The more we get into flow within an activity, the more we want to re-engage with that activity for the sake of the flow state itself. So it sort of builds on itself and compounds. And this is how you create really, really high levels of drive within people. Mm -hmm. This makes so much sense on so many levels. I recently read uh, Jeffrey Reidinger's book, Cured, and he talks about, he, he Harvard grad, a psychiatrist who studied um, how people have spontaneous healing. And mm. he found various diets, various lifestyles, various interventions, and, and multiple different people on multiple levels, eat meat, no, not eat meat, or this or that, or not even have a good diet, and they would have this healing. And he tried to find some of the commonalities. 
one thing he found almost universe, universally was purpose and meaning and passion, kind of this core piece in the beginning. And again, that's how I wonder, I wonder if there's, because I really feel like if we could really get ourselves into that mental or physical flow state, it's good. It's not only good for productivity and creative ideas and bringing enrichment to the world on that good side of the spectrum, but I really believe it's good for our human body, like our physical body, I think is optimized in flow states. Have you done any research on the physical aspects of like, does physical health improve with flow? Yeah, we've looked at it. We've looked at that a little bit in a number of different ways. Um, there's a researcher at Claremont Graduate University called John Ozzie that we were working with a little bit, who was looking at flow and its impact on PTSD yeah. Oh, within, yeah. within surfers. Mm -hmm. There's a few pieces to how flow may impact um, physical health. One, one obvious one is that if you're able to access flow when doing an activity yeah. that is conducive to positive health outcomes, like running or some form of exercise or even some form of social connection, you're going to end up engaging in that activity more frequently. And as a result of that, you're going to access um, flow more frequently and the benefits of whatever the activity is from a health standpoint, whether it's, you know, again, a form of exercise or connection. There are some more speculative thoughts around direct mechanisms that flow may have on physical health. Stephen had chronic Lyme disease for years in his early thirties. He was completely bad bound. He was suicidal yeah. for three years and a friend came and dragged him out of his bed and uh, forced him to get on a wave actually just down the road from where I am in Sunset Beach, um, just past Santa Monica here in LA. And um, he had Lyme disease and could barely even walk. So the idea of surfing was just completely right. bananas for him at the time. But his friend persisted and he ended up getting into a flow state on the wave uh -huh. and having this huge uptick in energy in the following days and a huge alleviation in the symptoms of Lyme. And he went back again a week later once he'd recovered mm -hmm. and had an even bigger uptick of energy with even less recovery time and back again and again. And his Lyme disease eventually ended up subsisting um, or subsiding, I should say. And um, he thinks there may be something to do with the neurochemistry of flow yeah. and how that alters Lyme or cognitive function huh? and that, that was somehow you know resulting in the in the alleviation of, of Lyme which is really interesting so there's yeah there's there's some there's some interesting well wow. hypotheses around it this makes it so much sense to me though because what I see is like I said earlier we have this model and I'd love to I'll have another conversation about you know doing research I'd love to be involved in that on this level because what we know medically, I mentioned low-dose naltrexone in the mechanism because you're actually inducing endorphin production. That's one of the likely mm -hmm. things that is present in all flow states. And we talked about that pain modulating effect, but the thing that's not intuitive, but that we see with that is it actually modulates immunity through decreased cytokine production. So when someone has immune activation and often Lyme or mold, or a lot of these chronic, even long COVID chronic complex things that we see, it's not that infection that's still, it can be still there, but it's really that infections effect on the immune system and either upregulation or downregulation in this whole interplay between infection and immunity. Um, and immune system and inflammation. 
So if you could see how modulate immune system to get back up and keep that infection down or at bay and downregulate the cytokine. So we need the immune system to go back up to its state to do what it's supposed to do and control these low level infections. And then we need the immune system to, that's overactive for autoimmunity to downregulate and decrease cytokine production, which is the big thing with COVID side effects, long COVID and all that. And again, it's a model that we've seen with all these diseases. And it makes me wonder then if that endorphin, that neurotransmitter, and again, we haven't studied all of it, but I, I love to see in the future um, to look at, are these things actually changing our immune system? Because I bet you anything, that's what we'll see, because we already have a lot of studies on stress in the immune system. And to me, this is like the antidote for stress, like in a, in a simplistic way, it's like the antidote for the stress effect of our lives and our bodies. Who knows? But this is so fascinating because I think there's the other thing I was thinking about earlier when you talked about collective flow states and having conversations or those, I feel like this is one of those things with the doctor patient relationship or any good friend or any good, you know, confidant where like, I feel like in the office, I do experience flow when I'm with patients, when I'm really present and I'm really there. And what's neat when you mentioned um, purpose and curiosity and passion and mastering autonomy, I can go click, 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 click. Cause what I do in the office every day, I love, I feel like my purpose is to help to heal and transform people's lives. I'm so passionate about it. I get real curious because I love to solve problems. So it's the perfect state for me to be in flow. And if I'm really creating a safe presence for them to engage in that, mm. And what I think can happen, and I'd love your thoughts on this, is as we get into a collective flow or get into that deep, intense, intimate conversation where they feel safe, they're really opening up, I'm listening with all of my mind, body, and spirit, the answers that come are amazing to me because I don't feel like I'm that smart all the time, but I get some really great insights. And it's always in that state where I actually think it might be collective flow. Any comments mm. on that or thoughts on? Mm, that's interesting. So the, so the answers that you yeah. get? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I'm listening, but it feels like I have to be in that really, really intense, um, timeless, effortless and complete absorption in this person in front of me. Like if I can really be present with all of my heart, mind, and soul, and I again, I can think here really well, but often the answers come as more of a, uh, it feels almost like if it was, it's not just my mind, it's both the intuition and the mind together. Coming from some yeah. sort of a muse yes. almost. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, that's one of the common experiences in flow is that decision-making starts to feel very fluid mm -hmm. and intuitive. And yes. but the reason for that, as you're mentioning, often is that the information seems to just surface. We don't yes. have to consciously recall or wonder or think about things or analyze. Yeah. It just, it literally flows. And again, yes. the reason Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi called flow, flow, was right. because it that's what it feels like it feels literally flowy and so that that makes complete sense and, and that that comes with the down regulation of the inner monologue and the sense of self that we talked about earlier and a shift from sort of conscious information processing where we're yes. analyzing or thinking or wondering yeah. to unconscious information processing where our unconscious is performing a lot of those functions and serving up information that is perfect for the moment but that yeah. we didn't necessarily know we had access to or had on hand and so it creates this really flowy fluid experience yeah. where we're just encountering the right information as we need it or the right decisions as we need it yeah. and people experience this in, in other contexts as well for example rally drivers uh -huh. or uh, formula one drivers when yeah. in flow we've done some research with them they will experience the ability to, without any conscious effort, without any thinking, without any deciding to make the perfect turn yeah. at the perfect time, 
with the exact right angle. And that's one of the big, one of the big characteristics of flow. So that makes, that makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Stephen Pressfield talks about it in slightly more esoteric terms. He talks about it as the muse and yeah. that yeah. you have to really build a skill of listening yeah. um, to try and get access to that other information stream, which is more. I love that. And I love that. First of all, you are so articulate at taking something I'm saying that's kind of messy and you're like, you get really, really neat and tidy. So thank you for that. Because it feels like you're getting me, even though I'm not always really clear on what I'm saying, but love that. And it makes so much sense. Yeah. It almost, I, I felt like one of my passions too in teaching other physicians is in medical school, it's crazy because we're so masculine, left brain, analytical driven. It's almost like 95%. You use your analytical brain, you'd use the science. And I love the science. I'm a bioengineer background, but what I found is there's, uh, I say magic. It's like the muse. You said there's a magic to trusting that intuition. And it is spot on if you're in the right zone and you're, and what happens is you take all this experience for me, it's about 20 years and I think you really can't use intuition until you have some experience because your subconscious is pulling from those experiential patterns, right? It's like pattern recognition happening. Mm -hmm. But I think that if you come out of med school and you have no experience at all, you kind of have to rely on the analytical brain and see some patterns. And then as you develop pattern recognition because of your experience, that's when you can, and again, like I, I love to talk to physicians about this, like really trusting that and then proving it with science. We can use both. We don't want to neglect the science because I love the science and the analytical piece. But to me, it's like, this is the perfect way to really get to the next level with medicine is starting to take both right and left brain, both analytical and creative, both, you know, engineer and, and creative mm -hmm. dancer, artist kind of person and pulling these together because there's something magical that happens there that I feel like personally, I get insights that I didn't know I had. And I was like, well, I don't know where that came from, but it's often very mm -hmm. right on. Um, mm -hmm. So love that you talked about that and brought that back. Yeah. Close. Yeah. And it's cool. It's cool to hear you experiencing that in the client to mm -hmm. or the the physician yeah. to patient relationship as well because mm -hmm. flow within service professions like yeah. that for the reason you're mentioning can be a huge amplifier of performance if, if all doctors were in flow with their patients and like you're saying decision making yeah. and information recall is elevated significantly in those contexts think about how much better the yeah. interventions that patients would be given would be if that were the case and that were always the case for all doctor patient relationships so yeah really powerful and and we see the same you know things even in different kind of yeah. service profession interactions where the the results that whoever's being served can get from whoever's serving them can go up significantly if the you know provider uh, or physician can access flow yeah. So we've talked about this kind of individual and the extrinsic and intrinsic motivations and the players on the intrinsic. And I loved everything you've outlined. Is it true? Could it, could me being in flow influence the patient? Could we actually externally influence each other with our flow states? Mm, that's a great question. Yes. Yeah, flow contagious. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so um, there's a guy, a researcher from the university of North Carolina called Keith Sawyer, who wrote a book yeah. called group genius. And it's all about group flow. Yeah. And he outlines a number of the triggers for group flow, which are triggers that actually will unlock flow within two people or within a group. And when those triggers are present, you're, you end up getting into flow with the other person. And so if, if you are in flow and you are, you know, giving rise to one of those triggers, then that other person who's interacting with you will also be made more susceptible to flow. And an example of one of those triggers is familiarity. 
Mm-hmm. So if you if you act in a way that is demonstrating familiarity and vulnerability to someone else, you are predisposing yourself to flow. You are also predisposing them to flow. So you, you can assist others who are interacting with you yeah. in getting it to flow more easily and more quickly through aligning yourself to those group flow triggers. And if anyone wants to read about those group mm-hmm. flow triggers, you can just look up Keith Sawyer, uh, 10 group flow triggers, and they'll all come up as well. And you can see what those are specifically. Amazing. And all these books you've mentioned, we'll be sure and link, we'll be sure and link back to all the resources you're mentioning. If you're listening to this um, in your car or somewhere, um, you'll be able to find that. Um, Rian, you have just been a wealth of knowledge. And I'm, like I said, I'm so impressed. First of all, your background, what a brilliant thing that took you to this place and then got you connected in all these ways. And you are so articulate and so able to bring this to a level that at least for me is very understandable. And you're so, you really, really get this. It's, it's amazing to me because of what you've been through that you're brilliant and you are able to bring this to such a level. So thank you for that. And thank you for continuing to have that drive to find answers because it's clearly benefiting not only yourself, but everybody that's listening and everybody you speak to. Um, what would be the one thing that most helped you in your journey of healing? Like, was it flow? Was it something else? What would you say was the biggest, maybe one or two things um, that really helped you transform to the person you are today? Well, working with you, Jill, has been very, very impactful. Of course, I have to mention that. Um, and yeah, thank you for everything. I'll mention something very specific that you actually did recommend me, and it's a physical intervention because I have had some challenging health issues with, with long COVID and otherwise. And it is a peptide called BPC-157. I know that's a very specific thing to mention. There's lots of other things as well, but that's one thing that comes to mind Um that really has had a positive impact on my physical health. And as a result of that, my ability to get into flow yeah. in the last year, I would say. Um, and it was you recommended that. So oh, thank you so much. I just have such respect and uh, for you as well. So that means a lot. Um, last final parting words, um, any any um, tidbits for someone like new to flow or like this is, sounds really cool, but I've never done it. Um, what would you say? Where, where can they go? First of all, I want to give information about where to find you. But before we do that, what next step could someone take if they're really excited about flow and want to learn more? Yeah, one good step to take is Stephen's book, The Art of Impossible, it's very practical and it really outlines how to access flow consistently. It's called The Art of Impossible. I think one mindset piece that I would suggest people to take away is that while flow and accessing the state can feel like this elusive, sporadic thing that randomly occurs, it's possible to develop being able to access flow as a skill so that you can build the skill of driving yourself into this state and get into this state on demand over time. So I just want oh, people love to that. be aware of that. Yeah. In writing the book, that's one thing I discovered because I could do flow and all kinds of other things, rock climbing, riding my motorcycle. But with that, I had mm. to figure out what is what like recipe for me will right. get me into that. Right. And I found yeah. it and it's 94% effective, but that's for each person listening out there. You kind of find your recipe, right? And for each yeah, person recipe is a nice way to put it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Awesome. And then where can people find you? Where's your uh, website, resources? Where can we find you? Yeah, flowresearchcollective.com is the best place to go. And we have all sorts of free trainings and free things on there that people can check out that are very practical and that will ground some of what we've talked about today and next steps for people as well. So flowresearchcollective.com is the best spot to go. Fantastic. And we'll also send them to your podcast, which I love. And uh, 
uh, look forward to uh, sending all these links to, if you're listening out there. Uh, Rian, thank you so much for your time. I know it's valuable and we have all learned and been enriched by your presence. And I'm really grateful for that today. Thanks so much, Jill. Thank you for everything as well. It's a real pleasure. I really you're appreciate welcome. it. Take care.